Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Dan 1132. I'm Jim Wittivine, and this is episode 53. And it's very good to be here with you once again. And I'm going to continue the discussion of some of the issues surrounding family life. And in particular, this week, I'm going to be continuing the discussion of daycare. Now, last week's episode, uh, I was informed that it had cut off uh, before the end. And so there was about five minutes missing on it. Well, what happened was my hard drive was full. And that's what happens when you have uh, 50 long, multiple gigabyte videos on your hard drive. And while I was saving it and attempting to transfer it, uh, my hard drive filled up and uh, it cut off the last five minutes of the video, basically. So uh, my apologies for that. And thanks for the people who pointed that out to me. And uh, yeah, uh, I can't recreate what the what those last five minutes were, but uh, you know, suffice it to say that it was uh, the regular conclusion for uh, for one of my videos. So this time, I am going to be talking about daycare, particularly and the daycare establishment and the daycare industry, and I'm going to be using the book Daycare Deception by Brian C. Robertson. And the subtitle of the book is What the Child Care Establishment Isn't Telling Us. And this book was published in, just looking at the front matter in the book, it was published in 2003, so just about uh, just about 20 years ago already, but uh, still very current and still very up-to-date in terms of the issues uh, that are at play when it comes to the daycare industry and the promotion of daycare and state-sponsored daycare uh, at all ages that has only become even more strident and even more of a powerful lobby in North America. Now, obviously, this writer focuses his attention on the situation in the United States, as often happens in books like this, but uh, the situation in Canada, if anything, is uh, is worse than in the United States, especially at this time in the early 2000s. The book is published by Encounter Books, a uh, conservative book publisher based in San Francisco, California. So uh, I'm going to go into some detail about the daycare establishment what are the forces that are leading towards and uh, the development and the, the, the pushing of daycare and uh, uh, institutionalized care for children? And how can we stand up against them? And, and first of all, understanding what the forces are. Uh, and secondly, how those forces can be countered. We'll speak about that at the end. So I want to start uh, with Robertson's introduction. And in the introduction, he goes about explaining why he wrote this book and what questions he was seeking to answer. And he said, why, the questions are, why do government and corporate policies favor the one child care option, commercial daycare, that most parents wish to avoid? Why is there no robust debate about this revolutionary experiment in child rearing? And the most important question of all, if parents, children, and our society at large do not benefit from the growing regime of institutionalized and government-subsidized daycare, who does? And so he goes about pointing out how we are, as a society, in fact, not benefiting 
from this move towards widespread or, or universal uh, institutionalized daycare for children, what the problems are. We spoke about, about uh, some of those last week as we uh, looked at Mary Aberstadt's book. So we're not going to get into too much detail on that. We'll take that as a given that there are problems. But what is leading to this? And, and he says, qui bono, the, uh, the Latin phrase, who benefits? And it's a question rarely asked in this debate, but it's a question that needs to be asked. Who benefits from this push? Because certainly it's not children, and certainly in the long run, it's not parents either. Robertson goes into some of the history, and particularly back to 1970. And he says, in the quarter century between 1970 and 1995, the proportion of married women with children under six years of age in the labor force rose from 30% to 64%. And he says it has not changed substantially since then. And I haven't looked into the details on what the statistics are since this book was written, but I would imagine, uh, if anything, those statistics have probably gone up. So there are cultural and financial factors, he says, that go into this increased entry of women into the workforce and increased use of institutionalized daycare. He says, in addition to cultural and financial factors, There may be another more subtle force at play in the decision of married mothers to work during their children's preschool years. Since just after the Second World War, parents have felt increasingly marginalized by educational and psychiatric experts, between quotation marks, in the whole project of raising their children. Now, this is a drum that I have been beating throughout this podcast and throughout the the previous uh, 53, is it 53, 52, previous 52 episodes uh, of this podcast. I've been repeatedly uh, emphasizing the fact that the experts do not know everything, and often experts are mistaken, and there is far too much reliance on the so-called experts today. And so that's exactly what what Robertson says. And he goes on to say that one of his intentions in writing this book was to make the case that deference to these experts regarding the care of young children is unwise and has proved detrimental to the interests of children and parents alike. While theories about the conditions under which children thrive have changed dramatically over the years, One fundamental fact has remained stubbornly constant in the sociological research. A child's development depends crucially on the amount of attention he or she gets from parents during the first three or four years of life. Parents are the most reliable child development experts for the simple reason that they know the needs of their own children better than anyone else. Theories of development, and I highlighted this sentence, often colored by ideological positions on the family and its role in society, should take a back seat to the actual experience of parenting and the instinctive understanding that parents have about what rearing children requires. Parenting is for parents, not child development experts or daycare professionals. Who's the expert? in child rearing? Who's the expert in particularly raising your child? Who knows best what your child needs? 
Well, it's you, his mother or his father. It's not some expert. It's not some some person with uh, certain letters behind his or her name that knows better about your particular child than you do. And particularly because God has made us in such a way that parenting and the way that we raise raise parents and the the instincts that we have surrounding our children, the, the idea that our children need to be protected, for example, the idea that we need to spend time with our children, that when our, our, our children are very young, they need that close, personal, physical care. All of those things are, are built into us as human beings. And beyond that, it's not just natural instinct. It's also the word that God gives to us. So he reveals himself in creation and he reveals himself in his word. And he shows us in his word what's necessary about parents bringing up their children. We spoke about this last week. So this deference to experts has proven to be disastrous in this area along with many others. Going back to the history of the child care debate or the development of this push to institutionalize child care, Robertson says, as in other areas of public policy, the history of child care policy in the United States demonstrates how turning the undesirable, abnormal situation into the guiding standard has the effect of damaging the very institutions that, in extremis, it seeks to replace. So, when government gets into the business of childcare, it necessarily undermines the family. In the cause of supporting at-risk or stressed families, government inevitably undermines healthy ones. So what he's saying is that policy developments were made in the 1960s up until 1970, and he speaks specifically about a conference that was held in 1970 and a proposed law uh, about institutionalized child care that was, uh, that was before Congress and the Senate in, uh, in the United States in that year. He talks specifically about that. But in those years of development of, and, and evolution of thinking uh, in the public sphere about this issue, the point was on the so-called conservative side, as well as on the so-called liberal side, on the side of the Republicans, as well as on the side of the Democrats, the point was that the problem cases need to be dealt with. And there was much talk about welfare reform, about dealing with uh, the lack of the presence of fathers in families, the the fact that uh, single mothers were suffering, and all of these kinds of issues and dealing, trying to deal with those issues and, and solve those problems via government projects and government programs. Well, Robertson says, and he goes on to say this, he says, what many Americans had previously seen as a threat to traditional family life was now offered as its savior. The true threats to families were welfare dependency, illegitimacy, absent fathers, and idleness. And daycare was held up as a solution, not part of a larger picture of family breakdown. The maternalist feminists of the early 20th century, who argued that women should have 
the more of an opportunity to stay home with their children and take care of their families as they were growing. Those were the maternalist feminists of the early 20th century. Interesting, the difference and the, the radical difference between the maternalist feminists and their, uh, their descendants, if we could say that, in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, and the years following. He says, the maternalist feminists would have been appalled. And another step, he goes on, along the road towards subsidizing a daycare regime for preschoolers was Head Start. And you may be familiar with that, that program, that uh, very widespread program in the United States and also here in Canada. And we've had some experience with that ourselves. So uh, this regime for preschoolers was Head Start, begun in the mid-1960s. Although it was conceived as a remedial program for children from underprivileged backgrounds, one of its important effects was to foster the gradual acceptance of government intervention in the care and education of preschool children. So the Overton window was shifting. And, and if you've heard of the Overton window, it's that, that window of what's viewed as being acceptable. So there's one extreme on the left and there's another extreme on the right, but that window shifts and it goes backwards and it goes forwards. And at times it seems to just absolutely run in a, in a forward direction where the Overton window just completely uh, takes off. And what was viewed as being unacceptable just a couple short years ago is now viewed as being completely acceptable. Well, that's what happened with the introduction of these programs. It was seen as a way of dealing with these problems of, of welfare dependency, illegitimacy, absent fathers, idleness, but uh, it began to spread and uh, fostered the acceptance of this kind of program as a universal benefit. And Robertson goes on to say, today, Head Start, widely assumed to be a success, despite its failure to improve school performance measurably for poor children, receives over $6 billion a year. And obviously that's in uh, 2003. He continues and says, a more important impetus for more government involvement in the education and care of preschool children was the radical feminism of the late 1960s which began to agitate for universal daycare as a way of liberating women from the drudgery of the home. Radical feminism, which obviously in the women's rights movement, in the feminist movement of the 19, late 1960s, uh, early 1970s in particular, uh, saw its duty as promoting women as being no different from men. So women need to get out of the home and get involved in the workforce. They need to earn a living in order to be valued. They need to have an income. Uh, they need to be able to pay their own bills and buy their own things. They need to be uh, a part of homo economicus, which is the, you know, man, humanity defined by the economic benefits and the economic our participation in the economic life of society, which is is basically the worldview that is so prevalent that we are economic creatures and that's it's our economic life that is the most important defining aspect about us. So that is one of the uh, the factors behind 
the the development of universal daycare and the acceptance of uh, universal government subsidized institutionalized uh, care of children and uh, the, the feminist movement but it's not only the feminist movement and the feminist movement and and the other movements uh, that worked in uh, in concert with the feminist movement uh, worked together as a as a team to bring this about and here I'm going to leave the book behind and I'm just going to summarize some of the things that Robertson says. So the feminine, we start with the feminist movement, but then we also move on to big business and the corporations. So big business and corporations have been very strong forces behind the promotion of universal government subsidized daycare. Why? Because they want to have those women in the workforce. It benefits them in any number of ways. And Robertson speaks to the issue of how big, large corporations, the multinational corporations, have been on the forefront of encouraging women to enter into the workforce and and providing extra services for working mothers, providing uh, various things like like breastfeeding stations and and various changes in the in the workplace and in working hours in order to accommodate even new mothers because it benefits them it benefits the bottom line so they use the rhetoric of caring for mothers caring for children caring for families but obviously corporations not having a conscience not looking at all of these other aspects are looking specifically at what is going to earn them the most money. And they saw, and they continued to see that this will earn them the most money. And this will, this will make them the most successful in the short term. Obviously in the long term, there are other problems, which they're probably uh, trying to avoid or push off into the future. So you have the feminist movement, you have the large corporations, especially the large multinational corporations, and this has a serious effect on small businesses which can't compete when it comes to these kinds of programs for working mothers. And so here we have another instance where uh, large multinational corporations are pushing the mom and pop store, the small business, out of the marketplace as in so many other uh, areas as well, which is why we see so much centralization, as we've spoken of in the past, of production of of goods, of food, of necessary uh, commodities. But we also have the government as a promoter of uh, universalized, uh, universal institutionalized daycare. And that's, that's an interesting point, which Robertson also makes, because he points to the fact that it is, as I mentioned earlier, supporters on both sides of the p- political spectrum who are fighting for the same thing. Now, why is that? Well, on the, on the, on the one hand, there is the fact that politicians receive large amounts of donations from corporations. And so they often are led to toe the party line when it comes to policy, whether they're on the right, supposedly, or on the left, using this two-party dichotomy, which so often is an illusion. 
So they they depend on those donations, corporate donations. They depend on those uh, those corporate uh, supporters in order to win their positions and win their elections. So that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is the what we could could call the the political correctness and a fear of actually speaking out against this movement. Well, because. And and we'll we'll get into this into the uh, the other uh, part of who benefits, because the media is not going to let someone alone who says uh, that daycare is not good for children. A politician uh, would be uh, drawn and quartered for saying something like that, and it would face a lot of a lot of pushback. And we see that we see that in in among conservatives who are very very. Uh, frightened of actually speaking out and saying what it is that they mean, because they know they're going to be tarred and feathered in the in the uh, public square, uh, if not literally, then metaphorically, for having uh, opinions which go against the the received and accepted wisdom, supposed wisdom of the uh, the the intellectual classes and the intellectual elites. So there's that pressure on them as well. Another level of pressure on politicians is the impact on gross domestic product of having women working outside the home. In order to continue to grow the economy, as again, the economy stands at the center, we need to have growth, we need to have increased production, we need to have increased consumption. It's such a, such a twisted view that, that we're seeing and, and so many uh, ide- uh, ideologies which conflict with each other uh, on the one hand trying to save the planet and uh, getting rid of fossil fuels and all of these things but on the other hand continually pushing economic growth production and consumption the consumer society women in the work having a, a large number of women in the workplace makes the gross domestic product go up not not only because of their work and they'll 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 obviously pay more taxes etc but also because of all of the associated activities that must be done in order for mothers to enter the workforce and that includes the daycare industry and the daycare establishment but it also includes other things which are far more negative such as because of high rates of divorce the uh, the employment of very many lawyers in divorce cases which it's good for the economy. Uh, various other things, po- policing, which needs to go up also. It's good for, the, good for the economy in that way. So there are all of those pressures on governments. So we have the feminist movement. We have the international, multinational, large corporations. We have uh, governments and politicians. We also have the daycare industry and establishment itself, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. And very connected with with people who are working behind the scenes to influence politicians, and also with close ties to social sciences and and even social scientists who work in conjunction with the daycare industry, employees of the daycare industry who are social scientists, publishing articles that that skew the statistics, that play with numbers in order to point to the benefits of universal daycare and long-term institutional daycare for children. So the daycare establishment as well serves to benefit. 
But why is it being pushed? And why why is it that in the media, for example, the the emphasis is always on the positives and not on the negatives and not on the the uh, uh, the areas in which this this push towards uh, uh, institutionalization of children is so very negative. Why why does the media uh, constantly point to the positives? Well, Robertson says, and and it, he makes an extremely valuable point here, that so many people who are involved in the media are themselves working mothers. So they are, or else or else their their wives are working mothers. So they are, in a sense, trying to justify their own lifestyles. Perhaps they feel guilty about what they've done, and then they jump on board any, any of the latest uh, studies or, or uh, results, supposed results of, of scientific uh, inquiry that say that daycare is actually a positive thing or, or a benefit for children. So they'll jump on that and they'll promote that simply because they themselves are benefiting or they think they imagine that they're benefiting from this and they they support it personally so there's that bias inherent bias which is in the media but it's also in social services in government uh, government agencies where so many working mothers are involved in these programs that they'll do everything that they can to uh, defend and promote the choices that they themselves have made. So naturally, they're going to uh, come out in favor of universal government-subsidized daycare. So all of these things go together. Who benefits? Well, the large corporations benefit, governments benefit, politicians can benefit, those, those who are involved in the social sciences, the experts benefit, and there is an ideology at play as well. And I'll conclude with this, and this is one of the concluding thoughts that Robertson uh, leaves us with in his book, and I think it's a, a very wise one. He, say, he, he begins by talking about some policy changes that uh, governments could implement in order to make the, uh, yeah, make the world uh, a, a better place for families. So whether it's tax breaks or, or various programs that could encourage mothers to stay home with their children, there are those things that can be done. He says, while policy changes aimed at making the economy and the tax code more friendly to families are important, they are not enough. Just as policy changes that worked against the family cannot entirely explain the family decline that began after the end of the baby boom in the mid-1960s, so policy changes favorable to family formation and unity will not entirely remedy the situation. And I highlighted this sentence, there has always been and will continue to be a large cultural element in private decisions made regarding the family, an element which includes the degree of confidence in the future, religious belief and practice, and the status accorded non-market work. So I'll just break down that last sentence because I think it's so very important. It's not just economic factors that are at play. It's, we, we can't say that it's the economy that's driven, that's driven women into the workforce. 
So it, it is a part of it. And we can't say that, that it's just one thing or the other, because there's all kinds of small or various aspects that go into these decision-making processes and the cultural trends. But Robertson is absolutely correct when he emphasizes this large cultural element in private decisions made regarding the family. It includes what? A degree of confidence in the future. So a a woman will go out to work in order to uh, provide for the family and uh, because of a lack of confidence in the future. Well, who knows what the future is going to bring? We need to uh, do buy this house or we need to have this uh, preparation made. Religious belief and practice. Obviously, our culture is the outworking of religion. And so our religious belief and practice has is is absolutely central in all of this. And the status accorded non-market work. Our mothers in the home, homemakers, housewives, what have you, domestic engineers, are they afforded respect and honor for the position, for the role that they fill? Or are they looked down upon because they are not contributing, apparently, economically? Because they are not acting as homo economicus, They are instead outside of the system, working outside of the system and providing often intangible benefits to society. Those are the societal cultural trends that lead to the devaluing of women's uh, women's work in the home and work as mothers Uh, work as homemakers, work as caretakers and teachers of their children, a devaluing of that position to say, you are not as human. You are not as much of a human being if you are not working outside the home, which is such a ridiculous statement in, in, in conclusion. To say that somebody who is inputting data into a, a database for eight hours a day in a cubicle is doing work that's more valuable than taking care of a child in the home simply because she goes to work, interacts to whatever extent is possible on the, on the workplace with her coworkers, uh, does this work for some faceless, nameless business or whatever, what have you, uh, and, and then goes home uh, with a paycheck, that that's somehow more important than giving the child, giving her own child, what that child needs most of all, which is the love of a mother, the care of a parent, the the presence, the mere presence with the child during the day and being there for them and spending that, that time, that extended time. When the child is in need, the mother's there. When, when, uh, when the child skins his knee, she's there to put a Band-Aid on it and to give him a kiss to prepare a snack, to do all of these things, to give him a hug, to teach, to sit down, to read a book, all of these things. Economically important? No, in the short term, no, it's not economically important at all. But vitally important? You better believe it's vitally important. And that is the spirit, that is the the belief, the understanding that needs to be recaptured and that we as, as Christians 
we need to not abandon for the sake of of being marginalized because, oh, you're anti-woman. You don't want women in the workforce. You just want women barefoot and pregnant and all of these other stupid uh, exaggerations and, and caricatures of the position. Out of fear, it's like so many don't speak out of out of fear, and Robertson talks about that. Uh, many Christians are silent about this, but we must not be silent about this. And especially uh, in our churches, in our homes, in our families, in our communities, we need to continue to promote the, the God-given structure of the family and the necessity for the presence of parents, both mothers and fathers, in the lives of their children. So I've got to cut it off here for now, and uh, I thank you for being with me for this episode as well. Once again, the book that I was using uh, to make this episode is called Daycare Deception, and the author is Brian C. Robertson, What the Child Care Establishment Isn't Telling Us, and that's a whole lot. So we'll return to issues of family and children and societal trends that uh, that are leading to breakdown in families and the and the problems that are following from that in subsequent episodes. But for now, we'll stop here, and I hope that this episode has been a blessing and helpful for you. And as always, may God grant us His grace and the wisdom to put into action the words of Daniel eleven verse thirty two, and stand firm and take action as people who know our God. If you found this episode helpful, please do share. As always, the link to the channel on Rumble, to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Spotify and Anchor. And may the Lord bless you. And may the Lord help us all in the face of the the pressures, the very strong pressures of our society against a a biblically shaped uh, worldview. May God help us all to stand firm and to take action.